0: And we are back for episode four of Commonwealth Ground. I'm one of your co-hosts, Victoria Sinsar-Churchill. And I'm Jackie Gary. And we are testing out our virtual recording today because we know with Jackie going to be in Richmond for the majority of the first two months of the year, uh, we may not be able to get together every weekend, but we still want to make sure that we bring this show to you guys every week. Um, now, we're going to announce it in the beginning as well as in the end, but we are going to go on hiatus for the holidays because we both got travel and lots of time with family, and Jackie's prepping for sessions. So, we've got lots of things going on. I'm sure all of you guys do. So, you guys probably wouldn't even really be able to tune in unless you wanted to, I don't know, listen to us on the way uh, in the car to some family events or something. But, um, you know, just to do that and just to have a peaceful and graceful holiday season, we're going to. Uh, skip i believe it'll be three episodes um because the mondays end up being like christmas day and new year's day and uh so we'll be back i guess it's technically the second week of january um january 8th will be our next episode back after this one airs tomorrow that'll be a
1: fun really like pre-session preview because uh a session will start the uh 10th so just two days after that episode drops. So um, we'll have a lot, to, I think, to, to cover in between then. I know we have, um, there are still, I think, committee assignments uh, and chairships uh, that the speaker designee has to announce. A lot more bills to drop um, and updates from the General Assembly. So we'll have a lot to preview before we get uh, really rolling that Wednesday. So looking forward to going through it then. But we still have some stuff to talk about this week. Um, Big stuff going on in the news and a lot coming up. So uh, what did you want to talk about this week, Victoria?
0: Well, let's see. So this is going to be airing on Monday, December 11th. So that puts us just over a month away from the Iowa caucus and really from the beginning of voting, which to me seems a little bit crazy because, you know, in Virginia, we just had our elections last month. It's, you know, basically been just barely over a month since we have ended Voting, And we're about to start doing it back all over again. So actually in our area in Northern Virginia, we have an election on January 9th. So the day after our next episode, uh, in Alexandria, in Jackie's Neck of the Woods, there's actually a school board district race. And then there's also a city council race down in Virginia Beach. And then the first kind of official election day is going to be for March for the presidential primary. Virginia is, of course, a Super Tuesday state, along with a bunch of our friends and neighbors from all over the country. So um, that's an exciting time for all of us. But that also means with Virginia's new 45 days of early voting, that means that voting for that starts on January 19th. And so that means that by the time we get to June for the official primary, we will have only had one month from last September to this June, where there has been no voting, and that seems that seems quite interesting to me. I uh, think it'll be a little. Right now.
1: Oh yeah, I guess it will just be like the whole month of April without an election. Yeah. Um, well, there's December. I don't think there's any voting going on in December. Yes, but yeah, right that now, is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah,
0: so there will be voting in January and February for the primary. Or for the presidential, for the primary. March primary, yeah, yes, the March primary, and then nothing in April, and then May we have starting May third will be the primary. Uh, it'll be something a little bit different for Republicans, as we've had our conventions as our nominating contests for all of our down ballot, um, you know, races outside of the presidential. So uh, it'll be a little bit new for us here, and I know there's been lots of talk. Um, on kind of how that's going to work logistically, but I'm I'm interested to see how that affects things with being a you know a primary for everybody in uh, next summer in June, which is crazy yeah. that we're already talking about summer. I know, um,
1: <laughs> I know. I'm like I can barely when...
0: think like three weeks
1: ahead. I'm like I can barely yeah. get that far um, with everything <laughs> going on. So like thinking out to the summer is kind of um, a wild experience, but. Um yeah I hadn't I hadn't really quite put together that between like our November elections and and all of the others there's really um two months uh, uh in that time frame that nothing is n- nobody is doing any voting. Nobody is
0: going in Catholicism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um yeah so that is kind of a, a a strange I guess kind of way of thinking about it but like I, I like I don't know for Virginia at least, you know, with having elections every year, like we're super used to it to it. And um, I just especially after my like Iowa experience, my Iowa Caucus experience, I just like think that giving everybody as much time to vote as possible, like you don't know what could happen on election day, um, is a good thing. And the fact that we have elections every year, like our board of elections is super good at running these. Um, and without like really any kind of hiccups or errors and so you know it it does feel like a lot sometimes and a lot of uh, some you know I, I think the argument that i hear and maybe it moves willing to entertain is like not the uh, you know aligning our state legislative cycles to the to the midterms and to the to the even year elections but i don't know i think it's a good thing um you know to that maybe not I don't know. I think it's, I think we're good at it. And I think that makes like it really kind of an easy and seamless process.
0: Do you think voters are fatigued from being asked to vote all the time? I like, I am of two minds about it. Right. Like I, I
1: definitely think that that's a possibility, but I'm also kind of like, you know, there's also the idea of like, well, you never can forget that it's an election here in, um, in, in, Virginia. And I I don't know, like, as somebody who works at the state level, I like the opportunity to be able to focus on like state and local issues without our races getting nationalized and getting kind of like, lost in the conversation. But I can also understand, like, the arguments that people have about that process to be like, voter suppression tactic and like we should be having these elections in held in the years where people are already coming to turn out right and so that we get the highest like voter participation um you know turnout possible um and so i i'm kind of like i don't know i'm of two minds about it there are sometimes i'm like really for, yay, um, elections every year. And then there are other times I was like, we need to do something about this. And I kind of go back and forth. Um, I think that's the lever in me i can't make up my mind
0: <laughs> well i think you bring up a very interesting point it's kind of that yeah. that voter suppression piece that you would actually say you know some people might say that too much voting is a form of voter suppression yeah but i think when republicans push back on things like 45 days of early voting that's kind of the argument that we get attacked with as well as voter suppression if you don't want 45 days of early voting um so it, it, again i think it's an interesting debate. I. I think realistically, we can't really ever go back to like two weeks of early voting without being cast as people that just want to suppress votes. Um, So I'm interested to see where this goes. I mean, I've worked in a bunch of different states, as have you. So I think you and I have kind of seen elections uh, from a bunch of different states, a bunch of different environments, you know, including uh, and up to and past COVID and how we were trying to turn people out to vote with that. And again, what that looked like with both kind of a GOTV effort as well as actually at the the ballot box at the polls. So it is it's definitely interesting, and I think it's also interesting to see how different states are approaching it. Um, You know, you brought up Mm -hmm. Iowa. Obviously, you and I were both in Iowa in 2020. Uh, The so for you, I guess it was really the last Democratic presidential caucus (laughs) as we know it. Um, Yeah. So I know you've got some information on what that's going to look like for folks in Iowa. Now for the Democrats, uh, for the Republicans, we still do have it as our very first nominating contest, Um, and I'm also interested to see if it'll look any different for the Democrats. Obviously, so you know it's going to be really more to sort out party business than who the nominee will be. But also, it's because we're now the the people with a bunch of candidates competing, and not you guys. So right, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Let me know what are what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? Yeah,
1: like so yeah so the the thing about the last democratic iowa caucus is like we kind of already felt at least like me and my other organizing friends and stuff kind of felt that that was kind of where the winds were shifting at the time and so um we would make jokes about that as as well um there's a lot that i like about the iowa caucuses um like i think it's a really interesting kind of like approach and setup um like, as somebody who's gone and knocked doors in a lot of other states, or states that, like, aren't as, like, they don't have this as part of their state identity as, like, the people who vet the primaries, there's, like, somewhat of a less, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of people are willing to sit and talk to you at the doors and, like, hear what you have to say, but, like, it's a completely other beast in Iowa, where I was, like, Getting invited over, like I would knock on somebody's door, and then I'd have an invitation to dinner, like later that night, um, to talk about my candidate. Or I'd knock on a door of somebody I had met at like the local party um, meeting, and they were hosting. They were supporter housing for um, three organizers, each from a different campaign, and so they all were like they would just like loved having people and at that door in particular, God bless them, they had just made cookies. And so they like sent me on my way with like a <laughs> batch of cookies. Um, and so like, it, it there is a culture in Iowa about like, you, you know, around this that I think um, is very special. And I do, um, there is something really fascinating about the process of a caucus itself and like getting people in a room to like talk out their differences and like, you know, democracy in action. And stuff, um, but you know, to that point, I think there are some really legitimate arguments about, um, you know, who that limits and like your access to a caucus. Um, whether you know that's people with disabilities, that's people who work. I had a, I had a couple. Now they ended up showing, being able to to come caucus that evening, but um, when I knocked on their doors and and they wanted to be um, precinct captains for Amy, but they really couldn't commit at the time when I was talking to them because their son had a basketball game that night. And it's like, I'm not suggesting just saying that if you don't make your kids basketball game, you're a bad parent, but like they wanted to be good parents and show up and support their kid. And, um, you know, but they also wanted to like do their civic duty and caucus. And I think, I, I can't remember the exact events. I think the game just ended up wrapping early. So they were able to come and participate in the caucus. Um, anyway, but I, you know, I, I do think that there is something, you know, you know, we hear all the arguments about democracy in action, but who gets to participate in that democracy is I think a big deal. Um, and there's just the fact that like, I don't think a single, I, I can't remember the exact timeline, but certainly in the 21st century, I don't think the Iowa caucus, at least on the democratic side, this might even be true for Republicans too. I haven't looked at it closely enough to really recall, but hasn't pitched the nominee at least in this century. I don't think, and so, um, you know, uh, there's a conversation to be had about, um, and, and this isn't the thing against the voters, but just um, a, at least, like, a very white state with a very specific set of, um, like, issues that aren't shit. like, the rest of the country does not care about ethanol tax and corn subsidies, right, but, like, that's a huge part of the Iowa caucuses for both parties, and it's, like, is a, there's an argument, I think, to be said about um, having that, an ar- argument against having that, like, very specific subset of people with very specific issues that are not shared by the rest of the country. Um, and, and they shouldn't get to go first. And we should maybe look to um, highlight a state that does have a more um, diverse, both racially, ethnically, but also, you know, politically um, and ideologically, a more diverse set of uh, uh, viewpoints to consider. And maybe that should be what's spotlighted as we have these conversations and our parties decide who the best nominee is. So that was a bit of a ramble. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what do you think? I, I what, what were the Iowa caucuses like for you? Because we were there
0: in different years, right? Like, uh, well, we were both there for 2020, but it okay. was you know, kind of different scenarios where you guys were actually tasked with, you know, picking your own nominee versus with yeah. us. We were just kind of there for, for defense, really. Um, I mean, I guess we did have a uh, Joe Walsh also running in the Republican primary. I forgot that about point. that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I forgot that entirely. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I think there are definitely good and bad things about it. As you pointed out, you know, the, the Iowa caucus hasn't picked the nominee in a number of years, really on either side. Um, I do think what is good and is actually interesting that the Democrats are actually preserving this year is still the caucus idea. They're still getting together to get involved in their you know precinct level, county level, um, and kind of nominating the people that are going to be representing the candidates at the county conventions and at the state conventions. And I think it's very hard to kind of keep that kind of energy around a grassroots infrastructure. If people were just asked to show up and you know sit in a room or a high school basketball gym for a number of hours without the kind of lure of a presidential candidate to kind of get them in the door, so that's what I'm interested to see, um, kind of on the Democrat side, whether people will still show up to kind of get involved in that democracy at that very local level, or whether the fact that there is no candidate to go out and cast a vote for, whether that'll kind of defer or I guess deter people from showing up. Um, you know i think on the republican side there's definitely going to be a lot of energy obviously caucus night we're going to be looking at you know really seeing who has the support who's built grassroots infrastructure uh i you know it's 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 a state that values grassroots infrastructure and i think we saw that both on the democrat and the republican side and you know kind of to our earlier bit about people being tired of elections the iowans love hosting the caucus so they're really they very energized about it um but for for you guys, the, the Democrat side, it really kicks off the early voting for the presidential primary, which will, again, those results will be announced Super Tuesday as well. So I was basically turned into a Super Tuesday state on the Democrat side, yeah. um, which I think is very interesting. I Another think thing-
1: I think they're still I think they're still holding it in January. So I actually don't know if that's the case
0: because um, uh, I believe well, this so- is... A- Yeah, the the cards will be mailed out January 12th, it it looks like. Oh, okay. But then those will be announced on...
1: Oh, I see that. Okay, yeah. So the results will be released on March. Yeah, so it will be. But the in-person component is still being held um, in January. Yeah, so I actually wonder that's like a good question and I'm not going to ramble here too much about it because I don't want to lose people, but um, I wonder how that works with like the delegate process and if they'll be able to still send our delegates to the convention if they're having the in-person no. portion before, um, Before I guess it's South, South Carolina now, because um, I think the DNC said, because uh, I don't think, I think New Hampshire is keeping their normal date and they're not going to get delegates, um, I think if they do that. Um, so it's an interesting, yeah, it'll be interesting. I like your point about the grassroots stuff, because I, I will say I forgot to mention in my argument for an Iowa, you know, first caucus, um, <clears throat> I forgot to say that, like, I think one of the things that is really good about that, that I hope, you know, can be repl- replicated with choosing South Carolina as a state is kind of like the retail politics, like the Canada is like forced to go. And actually talk to people one on one, and I think that's a valid concern, like of moving it to <clears throat> a bigger state and one that I, again I, I think maybe South Carolina can replicate this and and not not fall danger to it, but um, you know I worry that you know if you turn to a bigger state, um, it basically just becomes a race that's played out on TV and on digital airways and doesn't actually force the candidates to go talk to people. Um <clears throat> I just think that that's like the best Um, if you're not talking to voters and actual people, like regardless of what side you're on, you're just going to end up like spouting off the most insane sounding like focus group crap. Right. Like it's not going to it's not going to I think you almost kind of like it's like what you see on Twitter. It's like you got to go out and touch grass. And I think the retail retail politics kind of forces candidates to go out and touch grass, as it were. Right. So. Yes. Touch grass. Touch corn specifically. In Iowa, <laughs> touch right. corn. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be really fascinating to see how it plays out, um, and how people start kind of uh, staffing up. Yeah, I guess we missed out on everything that it would have been this year with like the the state fair and the dinners and everything. So, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's also an interesting point that you bring up is kind of what qualities do voters actually want to see, especially if they're voting in a primary, right? Is like, is it the real tail politics? Is it people that can be good on TV? I mean, you know, as president of the United States, most presidents typically do go on national TV, do make national addresses. So that is definitely uh, a very important part, I think, is of the perception both of the candidate, of the party, and then, you know, what? whoever actually ends up being president, right? Like they have to be the face of America to the rest of the world. And so sometimes those mannerisms that are good in retail politics don't always translate in TV. And I think at least on our side, I think that's something we're seeing that is a little bit startling to a lot of people that maybe know one candidate or another personally, and then they see them on TV and they're like, well, they're completely different. They're presented in debates completely differently. You know, maybe they, don't handle an attack very well and then you know they have a moment that goes viral or semi-viral and i think that is you know for a lot of people that don't tune into the debates that's really all they see of it is that viral moment
1: yeah well one thing and like to that point of what's more you know compelling and what voters want to see i'm Please, to any liberal listening to this, so please don't revoke my, like, Democrat card. Um, and to any Republicans, I'm going to ask Victoria to maybe say something that might make you want to re- revoke her Republican card and don't do that. But, like, one thing that I think um, Donald Trump does very well, and, and I would hope that you agree that Joe Biden does very well, is that, like, and, and one of the reasons why they both won presidential elections is, like, they sound like people, like, when they talk. they 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 sound like in the way that they speak and what they talk about, they sound like people. It's, I I guess it's maybe, it's maybe the, oh, the guy that you would want to have a beer with, trope. I don't know that I would want to have a beer with Donald Trump, but like, but I can understand like, you know, that aspect. It's like, um, you know, these are people that, that, Sound like somebody you just bump into on the street and you're like catching up with and you know it's your neighbor that you see sometimes and you know you kind of get into a conversation because you see you know did you see that crazy thing on the news and then it, it goes it goes from there and so i think i think for both of them that is what like the majority of the country has found appealing about them at different times um and and why they have both sat in the white house and so i do think that there is still an element to that even though that we live in a world where you know most of the time you're going to see your president and the way that other people are in the, in the world are going to interact with your president is the television i do think that that is something that people still kind of search out and want to see from the the person in the white house
0: yeah, I think you make a very good point where it's it's really taking that retail politics nature, and I think it's translating that uh, very yeah. directly to a media stage, to a multinational stage. And I think as a lot of operatives look at that, they get really frustrated because it's uncut, it's not clean, it's not kind of a prescription of what they would do in that regard. And mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right that it really humanizes both of those Candidates to a level that I think we've never really seen uh, in in recent years, at least.
1: Yeah, just the idea of like, you know, uh, not tailoring everything you say. I'm I'm sure you know there are tons of uh, (laughs) White House staffers who would love to be able to tailor everything that Joe Biden says, right? But um, that's just not who he is. But I mean, I personally think that that makes them sound more relatable um I'm sitting here saying um and like and you know just like uh collecting my thoughts as I talk kind of deal I'm not reading off a script and so um to to see somebody with that power and and you know name id and, and recognition to go through the same things that I do as I sit here recording this podcast is somewhat comforting to me, (laughs) I don't know how to put it, but it's nice to, it's nice to know that, like, he's a human being at the end of the day, right?
0: Yeah, and I think even for us that work in politics, I think we often put these people on a pedestal, even more to an extent that the general populace does, and then when we see those kinds of mannerisms, it really humanizes them uh, to a level that I think really our media and kind of the nature of how politics are viewed and covered, it's very dehumanizing in an essence. So yeah, Yeah, I guess yeah, yeah, we just want our candidates to be humans, not robots, right? We don't want any AIs running for president, at least not yet. (laughs) That
1: is a horrific um idea, actually.
0: I think there was I think there was an episode of I believe it was Veep, there was a guy running uh kind of as a candidate and he was like literally what like if consultants wrote an AI character and okay that, that's like really I, I forget the name you, of that they, that they
1: picked but do you remember the Parks and Rec episode that was like um where Ben and April go to work for some senator on the hill and the guy just sits in his office and it's just like this like any anytime the cameras aren't on him or like not talking to him like I think that's what it's giving I also think we're <laughs> so maybe cut this a little bit um, so <laughs> So, um, but yeah, so we'll see how the uh, Iowa caucuses go. It'll it'll be, and then I guess the very first time that our first uh, contest is in, in the Democratic side in Iowa, New Hampshire. So we'll have to see how that dynamic shifts things. Um, yeah, how that
0: really shifts the rest of the-
1: I think it's a weird year for it because I think it's you know i think our nominee is joe biden kind of
0: regardless of where it
1: is this year so we might actually have to wait until 2028 to see how that dynamic really plays out for
0: us so well is there anything next that you want to bring up any fun things happening down in richmond that you want to make everybody aware of
1: yeah, so the one thing that I've been kind of watching a lot this week um, is the uh, big infrastructure packages that were just announced um, in uh, Northern Virginia and also in Richmond. And so um, thanks to the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, there's going to be uh, a few major projects connecting um, D.C. and really all the way down to Raleigh in North Carolina. So yeah. Um, expansion of rail service a reinstatement I think actually of rail service between Richmond and Raleigh and then a huge package up here in northern Virginia um, to uh, let me let me it, it does a couple different things so let me make sure I have it um basically transforming kind of the bottleneck around the Potomac um, and instituting the long bridge project um, and so we've been kind of... For those of you who are from Northern Virginia, you're maybe kind of aware of this. So um, a lot of the bottleneck that happens across the Potomac, it's because of this long bridge. And um, the rails are actually owned by um, freight companies. And so freight rail and passenger rail actually have to share the same tracks. And um, when that happens, the freight is prioritized a because those companies own the rail, but also for to make sure like the movement of goods is not stalled. And so Pat, what happens is that passenger rail ends up taking a really big hit and you start to see, you know, the issues that people have with Metro and everything. And so this project would finally separate those two rail systems um, and, uh, and allow the passenger rail to kind of have its own line. Um, and and keep the flow of goods going on the freight rail. And so that's a huge project um, that was really announced, really just announced this week. And um, it's incredibly exciting. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that progresses in particular um, and and what that could do for the region and how that can stimulate um, this region, the whole, basically the whole of Virginia, because like I said, that will also extend down to, to rail services from Richmond to Raleigh and then, you know once that's in place and we have like you know good transit up here we can also hopefully start expanding that out to um other parts of the commonwealth like southwest or the hampton roads um because it's kind of really hard to expand services there when you're kind of two major urban centers have crappy rail service and can't handle the increase coming from other parts of the state so that's when i'm re- like that was so that was announced thursday by our um congressional delegation. I believe that was, I think, Tim Kaine, Mark Warner, Jerry Connolly, Don Beyer, and um, Abigail Spanberger were all there. And so, um, yeah, thanks to all of them for voting for this because it's really exciting for us up here in Northern Virginia and hopefully for Richmond as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually one of those Republicans that actually does not hate the rail service. I personally use it Uh, I am actually excited potentially to be taking it down to the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area because I know know, sometimes it takes two and a half hours to drive down there. Sometimes it takes six and a half hours. And, you know, I think for those people that do enjoy driving cars, which I personally do, but I actually got rid of my car earlier this year because I could not stand the traffic around here. And so the alternatives are so much cheaper and faster and get me places where I need to go. And, you know, if I do need to drive in a car, I'll typically take Uber or Lyft, uh, you know, kind of, again, create capitalism, advancements of services that people need on the go, on demand. Um, But Yeah. Well, and that's, I I think you raised a really good point from a conservative viewpoint, because
1: I'm like, you know, the expansion of transit is really kind of, you know, yes, it's the government investment, but it is really kind of, you know, expanding the market and the free market in ways because it's giving people options, right? Like if you would prefer to drive, that's totally fine. You're more than welcome to do that. If you would prefer to not drive for whatever, like I don't like driving. I have a really, I was in a car accident about a decade ago. And so like, I have a bad back. And so being in a car, um, you know, is really difficult for a long stretch of time is difficult for me. But if I'm on a train, like, you know, I can get up and go for a stretch while still progressing to my destination, maybe get to my destination faster. Um, or if I'm traveling for a longer period of time and I want to take luggage, I can choose to drive, but have, and then having that option also takes people who don't want to drive off the road and improves traffic. Right. So, um, I think this is something that everybody should be excited about. And it's also good for like, you know, supply chain issues because now you're not having passenger trains and, and freight rail trains clogged up on the same bottleneck and uh, can separate that out and move goods and move people a little easier. So yeah, that's that's kind of my big, exciting news piece for the week. Is there anything um, else in the news that you you are watching at the moment?
0: Well, you know, I think I got to pick him as my favorite Democrat again with John Petterman again. Wow, two weeks in a (laughs) row. What is this? Uh, no, he said that the southern border crisis is as much of a crisis to where I believe it was like the population of Pittsburgh crosses. I think it's every day or every other day. Uh, the mm-hmm. exact line that he I don't want to butcher it. So, you know, full credit goes to him for realizing that. But that's something that I've been talking about. Um, actually, you know, in my fellowship for Young Voices, there's some pieces that I've ran on public opinion, specific, particularly among Democrats, because I think, you know, really since the 2015-2016 Trump days, uh, immigration, especially being kind of a hardliner immigration, pushing for things like a, you know, physical barrier on the southern border has definitely been something that Republicans have kind of taken on. And, you know, honestly, I don't think immigration should be as partisan as it is. Um, And, you know, speaking of common ground, I think there is a lot that we can do that really addresses concerns that people on both sides of the aisle have um, and so, you know, for somebody like John Fetterman, who's, you know, in a swing state and who hasn't always agreed with that position to come out and say that I was pretty impressed by that this week.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it was the right tone to take because, you know, because of the way we talk about it, it does become almost kind of like this third rail. But I think if you talk to a lot of Democrats, like we'll agree that there is a need for like reform. And, uh, you know, obviously, like we're going to disagree with your side of the aisle on things like a full wall but like one of the things that I would hope that like if we can get past this like firestorm to talk about is like like increasing the bench of judges who handle immigration cases because like one of the reasons like we have such this issue is that like we just don't have enough judges processing these cases fast enough right and so then you get you know people who are living in a seat of limbo or they come across you know and live undocumented like and, and can't get services or they commit crimes or like whatever your concern is like that is the solution is to pay more judges to go sit on these benches and like move these cases a little faster, right? So like there's things like that um, that I would hope we can agree on like and if we can get past these things. And so I, I liked his tone. Um, I think that was the right tone that he took there um, my favorite Republican for the week, so I'm gonna go back to our uh list of bills that have been filed um in the General Assembly. So there was this one I uh noticed today, and I actually spent some time um listening. There was a commission board meeting, so I spent some time listening to it. Um Delegate Lee Ware has introduced um a bill in the Virginia General Assembly um to uh, dealing with the uh, Virginia Employment Commission, so that that's the agency that processes unemployment claims. And uh, this bill, uh, basically, what is going on now in Virginia, um, your unemployment insurance is not actually collected or paid through taxpayer taxes; it's paid through employer taxes. And so, when somebody files a claim, they have, the the agency has to turn around and go talk to the employer. verify it. And currently in the law, there's, um, there's supposed to be a timely response from the employer, which is uh, defined as a 10 day response to the agency for all the information that they want to process these claims. And most employers are really good about doing that. But there is some, there's a percentage of employers who just don't do that um, in a timely manner. And the agency has no kind of enforcement methods, or they do, but it's really long and um, complex and it takes a couple years at a million dollars. And like the fees maybe have got generated in the same four year period, like $8,000 return. And then what's happening is that, so like if they don't respond, they'll pay this unemployed person their money. And then like 17 months later, their employer will come back and be like, hey, actually, we shouldn't have paid that. They'll appeal it. And then now this person is on the hook um, if they shouldn't have gotten the money to pay it all back. And that's insane, right? That's insane that we're asking people to file this claim and receive money, which they have, pre- unless, you know, it's fraudulent, but presumably have done in good faith. And then we tell them, okay, you get $10,000. And then two years later, be like, actually, we shouldn't have paid you $10,000. Give it all back. Like, that's insane. so um, jell has introduced a bill to kind of um, give the agency a little more teeth in um, enforcing that timely response manner and, um, processing these claims. And, um, I believe, I don't think he's filed it yet, but I believe, uh, in that commission meeting, which is all public and you can go on the Virginia General uh, Assembly website and watch all of these videos back. Um, I believe Senator Evans said he was going to file this bill as well. So, uh, that's my Republican, my favorite Republican of the week. Um, uh, just from a staffer and, um, i've had a lot of my la friends which uh by the way i wanted to thank everybody who's listening and who's told me about it because i do really uh we do really appreciate hearing back from you guys about this but um, i'm sure you guys all know that you know uh, and we would all have horror stories to tell you about the past few years um with trying to help constituents get their unemployment insurance and so um it's really not a partisan issue here we're all kind of you know at our wits then trying to help our constituents to the best of our abilities. And so um, I like to see this uh, bipartisan effort to to do something to help our constituents on this. So yeah, that's my news for the week.
0: Well, awesome. Well, I think that's everything that we've got for you guys today. As promised, a little bit of a shorter episode than last time. We will be back on January 8th. So that is going to be Monday, January 8th. But that's going to be our first episode for the new year. As we've talked about, it's going to be right before the caucus. It's going to be right before session starts here in Virginia So, you know, until then, feel free to catch up with our earlier episodes. We've already got three out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. And unfortunately, we're only at two on YouTube because last week's hour and a half long episode had issues uploading. So (laughs) you can catch them, like I said, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We know some of you guys are tuning in already. So, you know, greatly appreciate all the support so far. And we look forward to growing this bigger and better next year. You know, have a happy holidays, safe travels if you're traveling. Uh, Anything else, Jackie, for the good of the order?
1: No, just wanted to say uh, whatever you're celebrating, uh, or if you're not, have a happy holidays. Hope it's relaxing, uh, but keep in t- plan to keep in touch with us next year because we're gonna have, I think, a lot of exciting to think things to talk about once we come back in January. Um, and again, just uh, really appreciate everybody who's reached out um, to to share that they've listened with us for the first few episodes. So thank you again for listening. Share with your friends. Um, we'd love to grow our audience and uh travel safe
0: thanks guys have a good rest of your day and have a good rest of your 2023 and we'll see you in 2024 bye Bye guys